Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. We're thrilled to welcome Stan Lapidus, pseudo-entrepreneur, diagnostics pioneer, and most notably founder of Exact Sciences to the show today. Thank you once again for joining us, Stan. Thank you. Thank you, Chas, and thank you, Drew, for having me. We're looking forward to this episode today. I'm joined by my colleague, Drew Yashar, to guide us through this hour with our amazing guest, Stan Lapidus. Let's kick things off, Stan. Can you share a overview with us, perhaps rewind the clock and talk about a bit about your background and the story of your career here? Thank you very much. So I'm Stan Lapidus. I'm Right now, it's of some relevance. I'm in my 70s. The first third of my career from 1970 to 1987 was spent as a straight-ahead electrical engineer. I had a job back in the day. Uh, it's been a long time since I've had a job. I didn't like having a job because as an engineer, I didn't get to choose the problem I worked on. So that became very important to me. In 19. 19- 78, so after eight years as a, an employee, I quit my job and started first an engineering consulting business with a college classmate of mine, Seymour Fredell, and that morphed into an industrial machine vision company called ITRAN. At the end of ITRAN, the end of ITRAN put the end to my career as a straight-ahead working engineer, and what we'll spend most of the time, I imagine, talking about is, is my transformation into a life science guy, the challenges, the opportunities, the way one sees things differently when one is an outsider. So from 1987 on, I started four life science companies, two of which became quite successful, and we'll talk about those, and two of those didn't. And so there are some lessons there as well. So, so that's, I think, the overview, Chaz. Terrific. Thanks, Stan. And maybe as we talk about this overview a little bit further, what's been the North Star guiding you that brings your work together throughout your career? So I I had an epiphany in 1987. I mentioned I was the co-founder of a company called ITRAN. I was the CEO. I had two two co-founders, a head of commercial and and a head of R&D. And together we started a company, ITRAN, which did industrial machine vision. It never really met our expectations. In the end, everybody made money. Investors made money. We made money. Our employees made money. But it was probably one or two orders of magnitude less than what we had hoped for. And we each became bitter. And by 1987, we weren't speaking to each other, except when we had to. It it was really business disappointment had turned personal. Each of the three of us thought the other two was a jerk. And... That was uh, left me with a very bitter taste. One lesson was if you ever start a company again, there's only one founder. There aren't co-founders. There's only one founder. If it happens that I I am that guy, I was here. I split the equity equally among my two co-founders, and that was a big mistake. So lesson learned, if you're a prime mover in a company that you start, you're the founder. No matter how much you value the input of others, 
you are first among equals. By not doing that, it became very hard to do decisions and uh, change the strategy of the company. And so the company was a disappointment, disappointment to me. In 1987, as it looked like we might sell the company, two of my investors approached me and really quite remarkably said, Stan, here's a deal, $200,000, start a company. Actually, they put in 180, I put in 20, if, and you, you Stan, keep half. If, if we like what you come up with, just explore ideas. If we like what you come up with, we'll put in more. That's a deal I couldn't refuse. It was great. So I, I deposited, opened a bank account, put the $200,000 in, and I probably spent the first three, four, five weeks just sitting around being bitter at my two jerk co-founders. And of course, they were not jerks. And I started to ask myself what I could have done better, what we could have done better, and concluded that we never rose above the quality of the opportunity that we chose to work on. You can do worse than your opportunity, but you can't do better. You have to choose better opportunities if, if, you're, if your visions are more grand than ending up with, say, mortgage money, which is what each of us did, money to pay off the mortgage. So I, I wrote down on a sheet of paper, after some more thinking and cogitating, three things, and those have become my North Star. And they are focus on huge markets, make sure you have a clear and easy to explain value proposition, and make sure you have IP that blocks others. So thinking about my ITRAN experience, which was developing industrial machine vision for the automotive industry, the market was indeed huge. We focused entirely on General Motors. I think we did a little business with Ford, but there was no question that GM was buying lots of machine vision systems. They weren't buying them just from us. They were buying them from many companies. So while the market was huge, we didn't have a product that addressed the broadest markets. We had niches, and the niches were not huge. So we didn't have a huge market, even though the overall market was large. Our value proposition of selling industrial machine vision to Detroit in the 1980s was a poor one. So the auto industry in the 1980s was getting slammed by primarily Japanese competition. And General Motors market share went down almost a factor of two because Japanese cars were cheaper and more reliable. They didn't understand why, but the then president of GM, I think his name was McDonald, I don't remember, talked about buying a lot of machine vision inspection systems to improve quality of cars through inline inspection. Now, that sounded like a value proposition to me, a ready-made market. But it turned out that at General Motors and in other car companies at that time, there were no ways to measure the economic impact of quality. And here's a story. Well, one of the jobs we did get was to monitor uh, assembly of automatic transmissions at a Buick plant. So there were three washers in three locations that had to be placed in the right order, steel, brass, and steel. If they were not placed in the right order, the transmission would burn out. So a customer bought a Buick, drove it for not very many miles. The transmission blew, angry customer. Presumably the vehicle was repaired under warranty, but there was no chargeback for the warranty to the plant. Factory managers were paid on output, not on quality output. So this is what I mean by value proposition. You have to have a metric of why what you're doing is valuable, valuable to the mission or valuable economically. And GM was all about economics. Third item was IP. Now we had one patent. Nobody 
infringed our patent and we could block no one because our patent was narrowly focused on the technology that we invented, but it was narrow. And so while we had a patent, one patent, it didn't block others. There were 200 competitors, each addressing different niches of industrial machine vision. And we got no lift from our IP. So my North Stars became, and I'll say them again, huge market, clear value proposition, and strong IP. Fantastic, Stan. And I'll pass it off now to Drew to guide us through our first topic here. Thanks, Chaz. And thank you once again for joining us, Stan. It's, it's an absolute pleasure to speak with you. I mean, I admire your path greatly to medical entrepreneurship that was certainly more securitous than your respective peers. Working so early in your career, as you said, originally actually starting with a medical device company, Elson in Israel as an engineer, but then to Raytheon all the way to the automotive industry, as you were describing, all of this just stepping you closer to building some of the most transformative diagnostics companies to date. Coming fresh off your North Star question, describing your kind of three core principles, I mean, I'd be remiss to ask you directly about your mental model surrounding self-assessment. And, you know, we've asked so many times on our podcast, just interrogating our guests' personal drivers, but less about the guiding principles on how peers could achieve their own goals. And I greatly respect that that you have that around those three, right? Seeking huge markets identifying a clear value proposition and building defensible IP position. And so painting the picture here, where, where you left us, right? You, you sat there in 1986, transitioning from ITRAN, and you're kind of looking at the ecosystem. But before we dive into your career journey, you know, I'd love to level set the conversation looking forward in your career from 1986. Could you maybe first explain to our audience, you know, how and why yeah. you developed this approach, evaluating new industries and choosing the right problems to solve, probably in the perspective, looking forward in the era? I had no particular focus on healthcare or on medicine. I just didn't want to have that bitter experience I had again. And I thought that, again, through this process of asking myself, why didn't the company live up to our expectations, came this idea that the first choice you make as an entrepreneur, is what to work on. If you get that wrong, nothing else matters. You could be the best executor of a business ever, and it will disappoint you. So make sure that whatever your principles are, I'm giving you mine, they're not universal, they apply to me. Make sure that you have some principles and evaluate opportunities compared to those principles. So here I was, and now it's fall, early winter of 1987, I've got $200,000 in the bank, three guiding principles, and I loved machine vision. So the tech geek in me, which is a large part of me, loved, loved and still loves machine vision. And I was looking for opportunities in machine vision that met those three criteria. Clearly, it wasn't making systems for inline manufacturing in, in the automotive industry. And I started a survey, a reading. This was just reading, going to the MIT library because there was no internet then, sitting at home and reading for hours and hours about following my curiosity into problems that machine vision might be able to solve. And within weeks, I hit upon the pap smear. Now, let me give you a sidebar here on pap smears. So from the beginning of time until the 1960s, call it, cervical cancer was the number one cancer killer of women. It called, killed more women than breast cancer and colorectal cancer, and ovarian cancer. The top, the top killers of women today. 
But cancer, until, well, say until the 1920s, because that's when the story gets interesting, until 100 years ago, cancer was something you got, you died a miserable, painful death from. Surgery had been around from 1900, which had, as it does today, curative. Surgery is curative in stage one, can be curative in stage one and stage two cancers, and is never curative in stages three and four. Systemic therapy is needed because the disease has, has spread almost never curative in stages three and four. So cancer was an accepted fact. Cervical cancer was a known cancer killer. And women gynecologic cancers weren't much discussed, but it was the number one cancer killer. And a guy named George Papanicolaou, who's a pathologist, an anatomist, as he described himself at, at Memorial Hospital in New York, began the study of cervical cells. He began initially to study, he would irrigate the vagina with the saline, collect the cells that came out, and, and studied them. He developed different dyes. He developed different metrics, not with the goal of finding cancer, but with the goal of determining, understanding the luteal, the monthly cycle of women better. When is the optimum time to conceive a child? Can one do better than with simply a thermometer or counting days? His work, interestingly, was commissioned by the Kellogg brothers of serial fame, who had started a eugenics Institute and eugenics conference focused on what's called the Race Betterment Institute. But to be clear, it wasn't the human race. It was the white Northern European Protestant race that the Kelloggs were seeking to have a reproductive advantage. At any rate, Papa Nicolaou, who was neither Northern European, he was white, he was Greek, he and his wife would not have been included in the preferred pool, but nevertheless did the work and discovered in 1928 and presented the findings in 1928 that cells recovered from the vagina have big dark nuclei lead to cancer. And early cancer can be found, late cancer can be found, and precancer can be found. And if it's precancer, it can be excised. If it's early cancer, it can be excised. And in those two conditions, those excisions are curative. That changed everything. The world today where we think of mammography, colonoscopy, exact testing, PSA testing, all these things that find cancer early was a new concept, and he pioneered that concept. So by the 1980s, the pap smear was widely used in the U.S., and it was subject to a lot of errors. And I'll explain to you now what a pap smear actually is, and therefore you'll understand why it was subject to a lot of errors. A woman lies on the, the couch, as it's called, puts her feet in the stirrups. The physician puts in a gizmo called a speculum, which everts, brings out the cervix so it can be scraped with a little wooden spatula. The cells from the spatula are smeared on a slide, but it's not just cells, it's blood and mucus, and cells from cervical origin, but from other vaginal wall origin as well. Cells are smeared on a slide. They were fixed, made, how to say, make them immune to degradation by spraying them with hairspray. Now, if there was a lot of mucus, the hairspray wouldn't get through and the cells would degrade, but sprayed with hairspray, sent to a lab. At a lab, they were stained and the slides were examined manually. Now, in the 1980s, almost all of lab medicine was automated giant machines, high quality, very consistent results. But you might imagine that cytotechnologists who look at half a million cells, half a million cells on a slide might miss cancer if it's present at a rate of 1% or a tenth of a percent. It's hard work. It's repetitive work. The technologists burn out. 
and mistakes are made. The impact of false negative mistakes is not the patient gets cancer that year, but the impact of repeated misses is that over time, the, can- the precancer will develop into early cancer, then into late cancer. And of course, for women who are screened infrequently, the chances of a miss, single miss, becoming deadly, the chances are much greater. If there's a single inept technologist who looks at the slide from the same patient in successive years and misses the abnormalities, the consequences can be grave. So while on the one hand, there was a decline, a rapid decline in mortality from cervical cancer, on the other hand, it didn't asymptote to the levels that people thought it should. Women were still being misdiagnosed and still dying. Women were being overdiagnosed and overtreated with a scary diagnosis. I viewed it, uh, so that's the background on pap smears, but here I am, an electrical engineer, and knew something about factory automation and machine vision. I said, oh, this is a factory automation problem. Technologists were scarce. They were, again, making sure that each technologist was doing a good job was difficult. So it looked to me like a great opportunity, and I approached this as a factory automation problem. Other things I considered at the time were automated inspection of printed circuit boards and integrated circuit masks. So to me, it lay on a continuum. But within months, I started to become a different guy. I bought medical textbooks and medical dictionaries, and I started to learn the concepts, the public health concepts of early cancer detection, the fields of cytology and pathology, cytology particularly, it's a subset of pathology, and learning about what was known in the 1980s, the answer is not much, about the etiology and progression of cancer. It took me two years to raise the money for the company to do automated machine vision on pap smears. And during that two years, I spent much of my time reading. I I had a co-founder, a wonderful guy named Fred Barber, who started as a mathematician and software guy, and and today is an all-around executive. But by the end of two years, Fred and I really were immersed in the field and had a great network of people, some of whom thought what we were doing was horrible. Others were very interested in helping us and raised $5 million to further the idea of machine vision and pap smears. And what became clear, uh, both before we raised the five, but certainly after, we could find cancer cells with our computers and cameras and stuff but we were not finding them as well as humans. We were continuing to make progress, but the progress was slower, and it looked like we were asymptoting to something that might make for a good scientific paper, but not reconfigure the field of cytotechnology and cytopathology. And so this is something certainly in the context of this podcast I'd like to talk about, which is the importance of the business pivot. First, recognizing that whatever grand idea you had, I had, uh, Fred and I had, about machine vision for pap smears wasn't going to get us there. Investors were enthusiastic, I should say, because the problem was appealing and it seemed logical that even in 1980s version, machine vision could solve the problem, but we learned it could. And so I started to look at methods for making a better pap smear, one that had perhaps remove the mucus. The mucus glued white cells over epithelial cells, making it hard to measure epithelial cells, and came up with what we called 
the thin prep. And I, I think we had a total of seven patents surrounding thin prep. But the basic idea of thin prep is rather than smearing cells on a slide, the physician rinses the spatula into a buffer, a proprietary buffer we developed, which does a great job at preserving cells. And then a machine, the thin prep processor, removes cells from the vial and creates cells on a thin uniform layer on a microscope slide. So it took us about a year. We were continuing the imaging project. It took us about a year to develop a pre-prototype of the thin prep. And we ran not blinded comparisons, but open label comparisons between the thin prep and the conventional smeared slide, two slides from the same patient. And what we saw was the thin prep had a higher pickup rate of pre-malignant and malignant lesions than the conventionally prepared pap smear. It was easier to see the cells, which was our first idea, but also because we homogenized the sample in the vial, the sample on the slide is more representative. The smeared slide has built into it a notion of the geography of the circular sweep around the cervix, and you don't get all the interesting cells off the spatula onto the slide. So representative sampling and making a slide easier to read were the two things that then drove the success of the thin prep. Ultimately, during my time at SciTech, we dropped the imager and focused all our efforts on commercializing the thin prep. And that takes us to the next step in the story. The next step in the story is in the early, uh, late 80s now, the FDA was undergoing itself rapid change. And the, the part of the agency that dealt with devices was being restaffed from engineers who asked the question, is this me- electrically or mechanically equivalent to something we've already approved to? What do the clinical data say? And I knew nothing about this. And we stumbled and the agency stumbled and kept moving the goalposts on it. But some years later, in, in 1996, the, the company got the thin prep approved under a PMA and then a label enhancement, which allowed Cytic to claim that the thin prep was superior to the conventional pap smear. So all those things we thought were true after a number of clinical iterations proved to be true and rigorously conducted trials. And the thin prep became a great success. So approved in 96. And now the story shifts to Pat Sullivan, who is the CEO. We did a great job in taking the thing and making it a commercial success, taking thin prep and making it a commercial success. So in 96 FDA approval in 2002, the company had made so much progress in displacing the traditional pap smear because it was superior that it was declared a monopoly by the Federal Trade Commission. And in 2007, Logic bought Cytic for over $6 billion. In 2012, to my surprise and delight, our two prototypes wound up at the Smithsonian Museum, which for engineers, I must say, is a rare thing indeed. So today, thin prep is the pap smear. I think it's, I shouldn't say that's, that's overstating it, but it's got between 70 and 80% market share compared to, there's always seems to be some, some rival trying to crop up, but so far not successfully, and the traditional conventional pap smear. So a global standard, not just a U.S. standard. It's in the most rigorous guidelines in the U.S., which are those of the United States Preventive Service Task Force, and has saved perhaps tens of thousands of lives, perhaps more, compared to the conventional pap smear. Why? Again, the slides are easier to read. They're more representative, which especially for women who are screened infrequently makes a huge difference because, again, if you have one false negative but have 10 pap smears, one every year, not such a big deal. If you have 
one pap smear, period, in 10 years, and there was a mistake, it could cost the patient her life. So that's the psychic story from beginning to end. The most important parts, I think, perhaps for your listeners would be, if you're not a person in the world of biology, you can become one, even if you are, as in my case, in your late 30s, just dig in. Seeing things a little differently than the conventional wisdom, the conventional wisdom was the pap smear was perfect, why change it? But we had good reasons to want to change it as outsiders. And the third was when things aren't working, pivot. Embrace the pivot, work with your board, you know, lay off the people you need to lay off, but do the pivot. Don't be timid. It's amazing to see. And thank you, Stan, from going from the start, from your own perspective. It's just so great to see the entire journey from your own lens and your own perspective, especially as someone that was an engineer that was later in their career than most folks start in life sciences and found your own journey to it. So I, I really appreciate the, the full story here. And so, as you said, with Thin Prep and the amazing transitions there, Thin Prep has reinvented pap smears and is still incredibly market dominant. And so, the amazing side there, and it's you know the most widely used method for cervical cancer screen in the U.S. still, which is just unbelievable. Looking back at the journey before we transition to kind of our our, our next side of historical here, looking back at the several companies you were able to build from the ground up and. I think I'd love to ask some questions around you as a executor now. Leslie, could you share some insight on what early stage founders and bio should know about just building company culture, scaling these ventures? Um, Yeah, good, good question. And I'd like to, for a moment, separate leadership versus management. Management is all about measuring, hiring people, firing people, OKRs, KPIs. There's a whole vocabulary of management SWAT. I'd like to talk a little bit about leadership. Leadership in an enterprise, first of all, is for, for, for a founder, figuring out what you want to do and then learning how to convince other people, the people that become your team, your investors, your advisor, your customers, that why what you are, are working on is, is worthwhile. So being a man or woman of few words is super important distilling what you're doing to as few words as possible is one of the key elements of leadership. So all great leaders do this, whether they're political leaders, leaders in the media, or leaders in in our world, leaders in tech, or or leaders in life sciences. At Scitech, I think that was I that coined this phrase. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite an obvious phrase, but nevertheless, early detection saves lives, four words. That was the point I hammered home again and again to investors, to advisors, to employees, and ultimately, well, the broader constituency, the physicians, our customers, the physicians. So early detection saves lives, tell the psychic story. It's the why we do it. The what we do was a better pap smear. And how we did it was the gizmology of, of the FinCrap and the, the cool electromechanical system that it was. But I think the first element of leadership is being able to tell a story in as few words as possible, and also being able to tell a story that's interesting. As as I got older, people started to come to me pitching their stories, and much of the time, and, and you know, when you do a pitch to an investor or to a potential advisor, there's kind of a formula to it if you describe the opportunity you describe your novel 
solution. You describe the market overall, the risks, the team. And I, I got to see that a lot of entrepreneurs would show me slides, which covered all these topics quite thoroughly, but were, I hate to say it, were boring. They weren't exciting. Telling a story in a way that's exciting, that relates to the person opposite you, is the key to weaving the spell, to raising the money, to hiring the team, to building the advisor group, and to selling your products. So among the lessons I learned, both at ITRAD, but especially at Cytic, were storytelling skills. And from that comes this notion, a very important notion for me, and I'd like to share with the listeners, is that business and science lie on an intellectual continuum. A good business story of why money invested in Cytic will provide crazy returns for its investors, which it did do, is as important as the story of the science and the engineering that underlies the business. So I learned early on because, you know, I was stumbling in my fundraising until I finally stopped stumbling. And then we raised the $5 million that figuring out what a story well told in medicine and preventive medicine and public health really means. And, and for each of us, each of you who are listening, that story will be different, of course. But, but testing yourself on the response you're getting, are you lighting people up? Are you making an emotional connection quite beyond the 18 slides or whatever that are, that are in your first deck? That is so important. What I loved about being I, I never thought of myself as a good manager. I'm not a good manager. I do have some leadership skill. But the thing that I mostly think of myself as is a guy whose interests are quite broad. I didn't know anything about clinical trials. I wound up learning a lot about clinical trials. I, for, for 17 years, I wound up teaching a course at MIT on clinical trials and critical reading of, of the scientific literature regarding clinical trials. I really became committed to that. I didn't know anything about cytology. I learned a lot about cytology. When we go forward on the story of exact, I didn't know anything about molecular biology. I wound up with, I don't know, 20-something patents in molecular biology alone. So always be learning, tell stories well. These are, these are uh, elements, and know yourself. Maybe the most important thing is I never aspired except maybe briefly, to be as successful an entrepreneur as, say, Bob Swanson was in building Genentech in our field or Bill Gates or Steve Jobs. And I aspired to be a guy who could have an insight and is be an inventor and then surround himself with people who could make that invention happen, make it commercially viable, have impact on public health, raise the money along the way, so those were my aspirations, but they were not the traditional CEO aspirations. I became a CEO because if I didn't, I wouldn't be able to, to do what I do, but it was not the goal. It was a side, side product. It's amazing with sometimes North Stars, so simple, can come out the most elegant, the most impactful companies to date. And so I really appreciate the insight there. Thanks again, Stan, for running through your thought process here, taking us back. So we're, we're in the 90s now, mid, mid to late 90s. Stepped down as CEO from Cytix and the immense value of, of what happened after you stepped down going to public, transitioning over to Pat Sullivan. You're now in a time of transition. So you had Itran, you had Cytix. Things that really 
struck me as as personal from your your background and your career, Stan, that I thought was fascinating was one, first your your core principles, the three North Stars that always guided you, but two, a, a second type of pillar that was core to your own entrepreneurial experience was these times of reflection during your times of transition. So now before we're going into your next venture, you have two behind you, one of incredible success and has changed standard of care for the decades to come. While you were in times of transition, could you describe the value about this period of reflection and maybe more about your thought process that you've developed in between each of your major roles? The thought process was largely the same. I became a little more sophisticated in pursuing it, but the questions were always the same. What's an interesting next thing to work on that others have overlooked that conforms with those three principles, my credo, and would be fun? So at SciTic, I had a wonderful chief financial officer, a guy named Tom Farb, and we'd go out to lunch pretty regularly. And he, at one lunch, when we were about to do one of our private rounds at a high valuation, he said, Stan, you know, our valuation is high. Why do you think it's high? What is it that we are and are not? And so the roots of what became exact sciences were rooted in this lunch, still exciting. The question was a provocative one because in its simplest form, you would think of Cytic as a company that made pathology devices. There's actually a classification of this as SIC, laboratory instrument company. Well, that includes in pathology, it's automated stainers and cover slippers, companies that have are, are not highly valued, but what they do is highly valuable, but they're not highly valued because they're not the whole story, they're part of the story. So not that. And the other two forks, which are how I've spent the last, you know, 35 years are it's women's health or it's early detection of cancer or cancer detection. Those are two big areas that had and have many opportunities in them. So I started to riff after that lunch. I went to the MIT library again and started to read about cancer, not through the eyes of the engineer, but through the eyes of a public health individual. What are the most common cancers? And is there any evidence for those cancers that early detection saves lives? The most common cancer by the 1990s was and remains lung cancer. It's often very deadly, though outcomes have been improving in the past 20 years because of targeted therapies, immunotherapy. Uh, it used to be a hopeless cancer. Now there is much hope. But there was evidence that early detection actually harmed more people than it helped. And we can put this aside for now, but there was a series of papers in the 1980s that used something called sputum cytology and showed that the invasive procedures that follow the positive sputum test actually killed patients. So I extract that off the list. The next most deadly cancer is colorectal cancer. And colorectal cancer in many ways is like cervical cancer. It was known that it developed slowly over many years as a precursor lesion called a polyp. It had been settled just recently, back then, that polyps drove cervical cancer, that there were no cancers without a precancer. And because it's an epithelial cancer, and because topologically, the colon as the whole digestive tract is outside the body, 
uh, it takes a long time for a polyp to develop and then penetrate the basement membrane and spread. So like cervical cancer, there's a clearly identifiable pre-malignant state. You can prevent cancer if you find it. There's a, the cancer develops slowly. And if you, to, you know, then, then as now, certainly using uh, scopes, proctoscopes, which were rigid endoscopes, then flexible sigmoidoscopes and ultimately colonoscopy, you can find cancers, but it's a, it's a, a quite daunting procedure to be a patient receiving a colonoscopy. Do a bowel prep the night before, which is, there's no other word for it, it's just horrible. And then you're sedated and this procedure takes place. You lose a day. Someone has to accompany you to the procedure. So compliance was low and people were dying of colorectal cancer. So there's that. And then there was evidence that a poor test called fecal occult blood testing done over many years repeatedly will sometimes find cancer early. Turns out it's not a particularly sensitive test, but it's the annual application that helps reduce mortality. And there was a paper just as I was, you know, having lunch with Tom and starting to think about what might be next that showed a, a mortality reduction, which is the gold standard for public health on patients who had fecal occult blood testing. So I said, oh, that's an important finding, but it's the wrong test. The right test would recover intact cells from stool, thinking that the colon was just like the cervix, cells shed, you can recover them. The stool sweeps through daily. We already knew something about sample prep. We knew how to get blood and mucus out of samples. So here it's blood, mucus, fibrous material, and a lot of bacteria. So it was an engineering problem. I like that. I can, we, the initial thought I had was to adapt the cytic technology to prepare stool samples, you know, a, a thin prep too or something like that. So at cytic, we did some early experimentation and didn't work. So I put it aside. And then when I was thinking about the next thing now, I revisited that. I also looked at non-invasive methods of glucose measurement. I had some ideas for cardiac mapping. So I had three or four ideas at any given time I was looking at. Oh, and a fourth one was a better colonoscope, one that would pull itself into the colon rather than one that was pushed into the colon. The presumption there was that a colonoscope that pulled itself would be less painful. It could be done without sedation and might even require a less rigorous bowel prep. At any rate, I returned to the, this idea of failed experiments with recovering intact cells from the colon and reasoned with high school knowledge of molecular biology that maybe we couldn't find colon cells, but there had to be DNA. The DNA can't just disappear. It would not be resorbed into the body. So I started reading and ran across the work of Bert Vogelstein and this was in 1994 or 1995. And Bert had published a paper in 92 that everybody ignored that showed that patients who had tumors with KRAS mutations in them, some large fraction of the time, had KRAS mutations in their stool. So that was a proof statement. We needed a broader panel. We needed to look not just at KRAS, but Bert's work was brilliant. And Bert was then and is now uh, one of the top, top cancer geneticists in, in the world. And we partnered up with him. We partnered with the Mayo Clinic as a clinical testing site and had our first publication in the New England Journal in 2004. We went public in 2001. I led the IPO. I hired a guy named Don Hardison to be the CEO, to be my successor. 
And I was chairman. We had a publication in the New England Journal in 2004, in which we totally did better than Piccolo Cult Blood, but did poorly compared to colonoscopy. So our, our metric was a you know, prospectively designed study with two arms and everything, or two tests per patient, was that we did, again, much, much better than fecal occult blood. We detected much more precancer, much more cancer, but didn't do well as colonoscopy, which in the intervening years had become a standard of care. And that led to a very long cycle of exact doing a total of, I think it was four, three or four iterations. And then under Kevin Conroy's leadership in 2014, and under the medical leadership of Barry Berger and Graham Lidgard as the chief scientific officer, the company finally hit the sweet spot of right panel and the right value proposition. Had a New England Journal publication 10 years later in 2014, an FDA approval with an amazing label for early detection of colorectal cancer. And under Kevin's leadership, Exact has become, for a period of time, it was the fastest growing company in the history of the diagnostics industry. And these days, it's in all the guidelines, and there aren't many cancer tests in the guidelines. There's thin prep, there's HPV testing, lab tests, there's colon guard, and I don't think there's anything else in the USPSTF set of guidelines on, on, on public health and cancer prevention. So at any rate, so, so colon guard is in the uh, guidelines with the final panel configuration and has been a tremendous success. The company does between exact does, uh, I think in the last quarter, we did $400 million of business, which is to say a million tests and is capturing a significant fraction of those patients who would rather not do colonoscopy with results for cancer that are comparable to colonoscopy and results for adenoma for polyps that are nearly as good, but it's the repeat testing. If you do your exact test every three years, chances are very high that you will never progress to cancer. And if it's cancer, it'll be early and not late stage cancer. So many people in both companies contributed to the success. It's, it's simply my point of pride that I was the founder in each of them. It's been a wonderful transition in the past as well. And Stan, I wish we had more time to dive into the subsequent journeys and the in the follow-on yeah. floor. But as a question, just looking back at Exact and, and a quick one from transition, just as someone as a founder, as someone that has been able to start and see through the end of so many, you also have had the great pleasure of knowing when to transition. And one thing that you mentioned from Exact that fascinates me is, you know, switching from founder to advisor when necessary, much like bringing Don Hardison in in 2000 as CEO. Yeah, exactly. Could, could you describe your thought process behind knowing when to transition from CEO to board member, when to hand that baby off <laughs> in a way? Yes. First of all, it's never right. I should have moved Pat into the CEO role at Cytic sooner, and I should have hired a CEO at Exact later, but you don't know, right? So, so the timing is best understood through the retrospective scope, looking back over the years. But for me, I never envisioned myself as a long-term CEO because I don't think of myself as a great manager. I, my skills are seeing things others don't, creating this exciting entrepreneurial story around uh, technology, pivoting if necessary. You know, we pivoted at Citing, we pivoted at Exact, and hiring the initial team 
dial into the initial patents. So I am like, uh, conceive of it and run it for five to seven years as CEO guy. And then it's time to get out of the way. I never had trouble with that because I had a good sense of where my strengths were and where my weaknesses were. I guess that always comes with phenomenal introspection uh, and what you had in transitions per career. As, as we're coming to a close here, I want to give time to Chaz to ask a few closing questions to wrap up our conversation here. Thanks once again, Stan. You're welcome. Stan, as we wrap up here, last couple of questions for you. It's been a phenomenal episode and we'd love to do a little bit of a recap and hear your final thoughts. One thing we love to ask our guests comes from inspiration in physics. We ask, what do you believe, like in physics, is the grand unifying theory of biology? Wow. That's hard to say. I am endlessly fascinated by physics quickly led to engineering. Biology is more slowly leading to the world of biophysics, bioengineering, biotech. It's a different journey. And one reason is, is that biology, in one sense, is complete on so many levels. You can study physiology, that is, the whole organism, and uh, what velocity does the blood circulate? What volumes are inspired? Do you take in an oxygen? And how does that feed the bloodstream? And what fraction of that blood goes to the brain at one level? And at the other level, molecular biology. And in between there is developmental biology and embryology and cell biology. And each of these is almost standalone and stuff. And my fascination has been, if you're doing early cancer detection, you're concerned with the patient as a whole. You're concerned with how single cancer cells become, well, the thing that kills the patient and how you can do detection to intervene. So I think to me, the, the metaphor, it is, there is a valid metaphor, you know, well, it's actually the metaphor is engineering is to physics as medicine is to biology. It's about the combination of the pragmatic and the scientifically informed, but on biology, the levels of striation are many levels deeper. To follow that up, another one of our frequently asked questions here to our guests comes from Nobel laureate, Dennis Gabor. He says, the future cannot be predicted but the future can be invented. Stan, what does inventing the future mean to you? I think it's a fabulous quote from him. He's a guy that I quite admire. I think it's taking the time and taking a few steps back from what each of us does every day to ask questions about unsolved problems or asking if you're working on a problem, if you're a scientist, an engineer, a physicist, a biologist, a physician, and you're not getting where you want, is how can you do things differently? Are there things others have overlooked? For me, given that you guys have heard the story, I would say that the inventive part of my small contributions occur in the first thousand hours or so of studying something. What's his name? Malcolm Gladwell, I think, speaks about expertise. It takes 10,000 hours to be an expert. And I would say by the time you're into something for 10,000 hours, you are an expert, so you're less likely to be inventive because you're now in the conventional wisdom. You may have contributed to the conventional wisdom. You may have fully inculcated it. It is those first 1,000 hours that are the most intellectually exciting and I think offer the opportunity for making the greatest contributions. A corollary of that is do something different every few years if you want to stay intellectually nimble. A little bit more of an existential question here, Stan, but we'd love to get your viewpoint 
What do you feel are the grand challenges facing life sciences today? The short-term answer, of course, is funding. Funding goes in and how right now we're in a down period and, and many companies doing valuable things are feeling a lot, of, a lot of pain, but that's not really the thrust of your question. I think that there are many good parts of the COVID story and many bad parts of the COVID story. The bad parts was an emergence of an authoritarian strain in science that has proven itself to be wrong. The full COVID story will tell itself over a long period of time, but the brutal, heavy-handed lockdowns, the shutdown of the schools, and the outcomes associated with those, which were not dramatically better than taking a more thoughtful approach, I think has, has given people in authority in science the desire to create an unholy alliance with politicians. So I think Keeping politics out of science. You can't be a scientist if you don't question authority, if you don't ask new questions. And what we saw was alternate viewpoints by smart people, not by nutcakes, but by smart people being shut down because they were unorthodox. That is science at its worst. And, and alas, our, our government agencies and the men and women who led them have a great deal of responsibility to bear. And one hopes that the missteps of COVID will be lessons learned and not a roadmap to a dark future. Speaking of that future, if you can crystal ball it for us, biotech in 2050, what's the landscape look like? Where will we be? This is a wonderful question. And of course, I have had no idea. But, but the slow and steady progress in curing cancer, not treating cancer, but curing it, has become something more than slow and steady. It's really undergone some exponential growth. And I, I wanted to talk about that a little bit because it's the thing I, I might know the most about. So that a combination of imaging technologies like PET-CT, the potential that blood tests have for finding cancer early across multiple cancers, the impact that targeted therapies have had and now immunotherapies are having makes me very optimistic, not for next year, but for, you know, the 2050 timeframe, that cancer will go from a disease that still in many cases is, is hopeless, it's pancreatic cancer and other serious brain cancer, to, to one that most cancers today are managed, to one that will simply be cured. Very encouraging reports on a report on a vaccine for melanoma that is sort of based off the, the RNA work. I, I think this was a Pfizer-BioNTech discovery. Really makes me feel good about the progress that we'll make with cancer. The great public health plague now for industrialized nations is obesity. That number in the U.S. keeps going up, and there's nothing that is staying that number. And it didn't used to be a thing in the U.S. In 1990, obesity wasn't on the horizon. People were obese, but now we're 40, 40% of us are. That's really a plague. And the cure in part comes from medicine and in part comes from things that are outside of medicine. I'd like to think that in 2050, obesity won't be 40% or 50 or 70%. It'll be back to historical lows. But to me, that's the great challenge of our time at a public health level. Because it brings with it cancer and diabetes and heart disease and kidney failure. So it's obesity is an etiologic factor 
across the things that are proximate causes of death, the things that actually kill us. More of a personal question here, Stan. You've been an inspiration to so many of the listeners in our audience here. We'd love to learn who inspires you and why. Oh, there was a book I read as a child. I think I was 10. It was called The Microbe Hunters by a guy named Paul DeCreef. And you know, I stayed out of life science for, for many years, but Paul DeCreef's book was mostly about a little bit of the history of medicine and a lot about the heroes of the 19th and the early 20th century who beat down infectious disease, which was the number one killer of mankind until last century. So that book was truly inspirational. A countervailing force, however, which is why I stayed out of biology until I was 38 or 30, 38, was high school and grade school biology, where in physics, in electronics, and I was this ham radio guy, you could experiment, you could tinker, you could make things. And in biology, as it was taught, it seemed to me all about remembering disconnected facts for which there were no unifying themes and all the joy of discovery had been sucked out of the way biology had been taught, at least to me in my grade school and in my, my high school. So I, I knew coming out of high school, whatever I'm going to do, it's not going to be in life sciences. And, and what, what a surprising turn my life took. Stan, we've touched on so many fun topics today throughout your career. How can our listeners learn more about you and your work? Well, to learn more about me, there's a Harvard Business School case that you can look up on the website and it's broadly available. I don't do scientific papers. The people on my teams do that and my collaborators do that. I do patents. So there is, if you really, yeah, because if one wanted to learn about my work and there's no reason why I would want to, but if one did, looking at the arc of my patents is a way to get to understand my own intellectual journey. It's been an absolutely fantastic episode today, Stan. We are so very grateful for your time and Look forward to having you back on the show again soon. Thanks again for joining us. Well, thank you very much. It was great fun. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.